0: Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program Foundations in Faith. Today we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to Matthew, the 4th chapter, the 12th to the 23rd verse. And uh, it has to do in, with the calling of the disciples, but it's contextualized in another way as well that tends to explain to us something of the situation that Jesus finds himself in in, uh, in Jerusalem. And so the gospel begins hearing that John had been arrested. Jesus went back to Galilee. Now, Jesus is in Jerusalem in the Synoptic Gospels, or not in the Synoptic Gospels, but certainly in the Gospel of Saint Matthew, and that he has just uh, driven the money changers out of the temple, and he has also um, challenged the uh, laxity and the indifference that much of the personnel around the temple have demonstrated and show in relationship to the to the maintaining of the holy of holies in relationship to the maintaining of the covenant and so once he has now created kind of a public reforming figure and he understands that john has been for his preaching been thrown into prison jesus says all right it's time to go back to galilee it's time to go back and gradually start this, lest everything you know, explode before the time has come, before it's before I've had the opportunity to uh, really fulfill the mission that I came. It isn't that he's fleeing danger, it's that he's protecting the opportunity to proclaim the messianic message. And so he returns to Galilee, Matthew says, And he goes to Nazareth, but leaves there and settles in Capernaum. Um, We know from Luke's gospel that he did not receive a very warm welcome in Nazareth, and that Peter lived in uh, in Capernaum, and that Capernaum was a larger city, a more settled city, and it had also it it had a, a, a reputable synagogue. So Jesus goes and he settles in Capernaum, and then Matthew wants us to know that this is in fulfillment of the prophecies of old, a lakeside town, Capernaum, on the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali, and in this way the prophecy of Isaiah was to be fulfilled, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, way of the sea on the far side of Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people that lived in darkness has seen a great light on those who dwell in the land, a shadow of death, a light has dawned. And so that's a rather extensive quote from the prophecies of Isaiah. But Matthew uses a lot of Old Testament uh, texts, and he does this particularly now to show again that Jesus, in beginning this kind of mission in Capernaum, is fulfilling the scriptures. For he now says that he refers to Galilee as the land of darkness and the land and the and the land of the nations. It's because Galilee was the first part of the Holy Land to be invaded by outsiders. And so there was a very strong um, pagan element, a very strong Gentile element in Galilee. And it is here then that Jesus, in the, in the midst of this mixed community, um, is fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah, saying the light shall begin to dawn. And I think that we might even be able to reflect and say in the prophecy, the light has begun to dawn not only to those who believe and not only to those who are called to the covenant, but the light has begun to dawn now also upon the pagans and the Gentiles. And so from that moment, Jesus began his preaching with the message, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. Now here we have to pause because we see this in many places. John has been arrested. What was John's proclamation? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so in this cry for repentance... John the Baptist interestingly enough in a very kind of modern mode we might say condemned condemned marriages that were disorderly condemned marriages that were forbidden by the law condemned marriages that broke the taboos for instance of the closeness of uh, of kinship and all of these kinds of things that are today very much a part of the discussion of what marriage is the disorderliness of it that's being introduced of course and being defended and uh, and somehow or other you know the idea of the permanency and so forth being relativized marriage is in a crisis today obviously marriage was in a crisis in the Lord in the in the days of the Lord because John the Baptist himself condemns the marriage of Hedder Herod and Herodias because Herodias is the wife of his brother. Um, It's it's not, you know, it's not an allusion to the Old Testament where a man dies um, and his brother marries the widow um, in order to produce children, something that they're not sure ever really was enforced, something that... uh, that we know was part of the problem in England during the reign of Henry VIII as he married his brother's widow. Um, but no, no, it's more, it's more serious than that. This is marrying the divorced wife of your brother, and therefore it is considered to be incest in, this, in the scriptures. John condemns this, and for this is thrown into prison, and ultimately ultimately is executed for it so jesus is wise if he still has work to do to move away further away from the court of herod and further away from the jealousy of the priests of the temple in order that he might have the freedom to continue in the time to get freedom to continue until he has completed his mission and at that point then he walks back into jerusalem And we know the story, the passion, the crucifixion. But then now, once he has come back to Galilee, once he has avoided the the, uh, dangers of Jerusalem for the time being, and he comes back into Capernaum, and he is walking by the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. And they were making a cast in the lake with their nets, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they left their nets at once and followed him. The call of the disciples now begins to take place. The real work of the Lord, the real, we might even say in a strange sort of way, the real organizational work of the Lord is now beginning to take place. Those who are to continue his mission and those who are to proclaim his kerygma now are being gathered together around him. And as such, he is beginning to build the structure of his church. Andrew and Peter... Uh, and Simon, Andrew and Simon um, are brothers and we've encountered them in a different sort of way in John's Gospel where John seems to indicate that at least Andrew was uh, was a disciple of the Baptist there's nothing here in Matthew's Gospel that would in any way shape or form contradict that and so <clears throat> Jesus calls them and they at once left and followed him you know this, this is something that I think that we have to reflect upon and we have to pray over, we have to think about. Um, and we can say in some way, you know, people in discerning what vocation they have in life, including marriage, you know, can, can say to themselves, well, how do I know what God's will is for me? And uh, that's a legitimate question. But you know, we find people who who go on for years and years wondering what God's will is for them. In the discernment of marriage, that usually ends when you meet someone that you want to marry. How does that end in religious vocations? How does that end um, if God does not in some way, shape, or form tap you on the shoulder and tell you, yes, I want you to be a priest, yes, I want you to be a religious? How then do do we know the will of God so that it is not an endless discernment process? Um, That, you know, when someone is 25 years old, uh, they're discerning a vocation, and when they're 35 years old, they're still discerning the vocation. That's not really, um, that's kind of addiction to discernment. It's not really making a decision. How do we know what God's will is for us? And I think that we have to help the Lord to let us know that, because he does not in any way, shape, or form force us to do something. I think that what we have to do is we have to concretize the possibilities. And in concretizing the possibilities, for instance, if someone has struggled with the idea of a religious vocation, and years go on, a few or many go on, and there seems to be no clarity and no peace and no settlement of it, then what is telling us is that this this discernment has to go on outside of our heads. It has to go on in the concreteness of our nature. It has to go on in our life experience. It has to become an existential option. And so the way that we know God's will eventually in that kind of a situation is simply to do it. And if it is not for us, the Lord will lead us back out again. But there is no disgrace in trying to concretize what we believe might be God's will for us, might be God's call to us. So it is not something that that people need be afraid of. But we cannot allow it constantly to circle and to just stew in our heads without it ever touching the ground, without there ever being a real concrete decision to make. This is something St. Bernard says about freedom, you know, that, that freedom has to involve some kind of concrete choices. And so when we say, how do we know what God's will is for me? then, and we pray about it, and we live faithful lives, we, we, we confess, we, we receive the Eucharist, what then do we do? We concretize it in some way, shape, or form. We say, fine, I will try it, and I will see what happens, and God's will be done. If we get there, and we cannot stand it, God's will is done. God has communicated to us, and we have lost nothing for the experience itself. is an experience of growth an experience of potential peace, and an experience of some kind of subtleness in our lives. Here, the call is more direct than that. Here, the call is less ambiguous, and here, the response is immediate. There is just as much risk for Peter and Andrew to give up their business and to follow the Messiah, to follow Jesus, as it is in our own world for some younger person to give up possible careers and to therefore test themselves with the Lord. Um, in marriage, of course, when we're called to marriage, we have the engagement period where we concretize the thought, we concretize the concept of marriage, we concretize the possibility of marriage, and then we have a decision in which we decide. And if a couple becomes engaged and through the course of their engagement they say, this is not for us, there is, there is no, nothing wrong with that, there is nothing harmful to that. So when when we strive to discern the divine will, it is more than internal. It must be concretized. It must become an existential choice in our lives. The existential choice that Peter and Andrew made, instantaneously they made it, but they made that sacrifice. They gave up a way of life, an alternative way of life. They gave up something that was secure in their world, and they gave up something that they had been prepared for and that they had trained to do. And then they left and concretized the possibility of God's call of God's will for them. And we know the story of the struggles that they had with those kinds, that kind of a commitment. And we certainly know, as is emphasized to us during the Passion, the failure of Peter to be faithful to that commitment and how he recoups from that and how he repents of that and how he goes on to become that fast and strong and secure disciple of the Lord. Then going on from there, he saw another pair of brothers, James, the sons of, son of Zebedee and his brother John and they were in their boat with their father Zebedee mending their nets and he called them. And once leaving the boat and their father, they followed him. Another thing they could have said, hmm, well I wonder if we're going to follow him or not. Um, But no, they concretized the decision and they followed him. We know also, for instance, that they were not around John, John, yes, he was around at the crucifixion, but the rest of them seem to be nowhere to be found. There is a crisis in this commitment that they have made to the Lord, a crisis that demonstrates their weakness of faith, their weakness of commitment, but in the end, in the end, they are faithful to the Lord. In the end, they endure the struggle, they endure the ambiguity, they endure the doubt, they endure the sense of failure. And they continue in their journey toward the Lord. Then he went around the whole of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing all kinds of diseases and sickness among the people. Once he has gathered around him now, and we find in other Gospels the more complete calling of the disciples, where he establishes a human community that is going to be his companions through his life, and companions in his death and resurrection, and companions to his people until the end of time, carrying with them the experience of their vocational discernment, we might even say, the, the fruits of that choice and the consequences of that choice, which they then have bequeathed upon the people who come after them, to remind us that even though there might be inconveniences and dangers in and following the Lord, that nevertheless, ultimately, If the Lord calls us, this is our destiny, this is our salvation, this is the fulfillment of of our lives, this is the meaning of our life. Jesus then, now once he has gathered around him the, the embryonic church, he goes proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. He has already proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now he's going around and proclaiming about how that kingdom is to come in our lives. He's gone from the fact, the fact that was proclaimed also by John, that he picks up, in, in fact, the last prophetic, the last prophetic pronouncement of the ancient world, of the Old Testament, of the Old Covenant. And he begins the life of the New Covenant with the same admonition, repent, repent. For unless we turn away from that which is contrary to our life with God, there is no way that we will hear, understand, or follow. And so repentance then is tied up also in this last sentence that we saw in the gospel where he cures the sick of all kinds of diseases. And we also know that in the scriptures that all disease and all infirmities are not the result, you know, I sinned and therefore I'm blind. That that we saw also is, is just absolutely denied by the Gospels. But that humanity has created disorder within the universe and within the creation, has therefore created disorderliness in the lives of the people who live there. And so they see the illness, the sickness, and the infirmities of people as being a consequence of human sinfulness, a consequence of man in in its corporate nature disobeying and turning away from the living God. We know it's summed up in the sin of Adam and Eve, which is to try and be like God. We know all that. And we know that Adam and Eve, once having sinned, were different than they were before. And when they reproduced their own kind, they reproduced a kind that was also different when what was intended in creation of paradise itself. So that it is not that God punishes each generation because of the sins of the parents. It's because the parents pass on their sinfulness to the generations that come after them. And so how then is that to be healed? How How is that to be? How are we to be redeemed? Well, we find, for instance, here in Matthew's gospel now, Jesus is beginning to cure and to heal. We know that in John's gospel in the 20th chapter, we've already seen that, that uh, the Lord identifies the forgiveness of sin, this healing of the consequences of sin, as his mission in the world, and therefore the mission of his disciples and so once he has gathered his disciples around him, he then begins to show them what it means to be disciples of the Lord. They are to proclaim the repentance for the forgiveness of sins. They are to go through teaching this, the and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And they are to the best of their ability to cure and to heal those who are burdened down by the heavy weight of human sinfulness in order that the world might begin to rise up. Saint Bernard, man, Saint Bernard portrays this as kind of the sinfulness we're bent over. We look at the ground, we can't even look upward. All we can see is the ground in front of us. And then Bernard says, through the practice of virtue and through the small and simple things, prayers of our lives, we gradually can stand upright until eventually we can look up to the Lord and therefore come into the light. Well, in a sense, Bernard is giving an elaborate and interesting interpretation to how Jesus understands his mission in the midst of the world. It is to lift us up from our prone positions in order that standing upright we might see the light that the Lord has given us in our hearts, and our souls, and our minds, that we may travel faithfully and with desire along the path that he has laid out for each of us in our lives. And so when we look at this gospel and we begin to reflect on it, it's not just simply an ancient story, it's not just simply a a historical narrative. It's a story about the rebirth of humanity. It's a story about the simple way in which it happens and the chaotic way that it has to come out of. It is chaotic in the arresting of the Baptist for being faithful to the sense of a proper sense of marriage. It is coming out of the chaos of the driving of the the merchants from the temple. It is to come out of the resentment and and the anger of the priestly personnel of uh, of the temple against Jesus because of his authenticity authenticity because of, as they say, he speaks with authority. He is not simply an arguer about abstract ideas. He is speaking with the authority and in a fully prophetic way, which is the authority of God. And so he is creating this resentment because it's unsettling and is upsetting. We've seen before that given the choice, you know, people can dream about perfection, but are they willing to let loose of those things in order that they might attain it? And the answer to that is overwhelmingly probably not. At least humanity has not in some ways demonstrated that throughout the generations. And so if we're talking about then the simple way that the the rebirth of humanity begins, it begins how? It begins with prudence. When Jesus leaves Jerusalem because of the arrest of John, because if he stays, it will cut his mission short, and he knows that that will not be good for us. So he returns to to Galilee. He is unwelcome in Nazareth. And once again, rather than suffer any kind of harm that would in some way impede his mission, he leaves and he goes to the more friendly city of Capernaum. And it's in Capernaum that he very strongly begins his public mission. And he gathers around him then in Galilee along the lake of Tiberias, along the Sea of Galilee, he gathers around him then the beginning, the nucleus of the church, the nucleus of the human discipleship, which will be led by the Spirit into the kingdom of heaven. As he does that, he shows us how important it is for human cooperation and for humanity to desire, therefore, to follow him in such a way that his kingdom begins to grow and take root, and becomes once again concretized. This is interesting in the will of God, for we go back to we go back all the way to the prophets. The prophets are talking about this; they're creating imagery about this. We see in Isaiah the great mountain where the lion lays down, lays down with the lamb, and the child puts his hand in the adder's lair and all of the animals become eat grass instead of each other as we find you know if we watch these natural kingdom movies or or tv programs or something all things become peaceful and orderly once again that's that's an ideal that isaiah puts forward is it something we experience no is it something that lies somewhere in the fulfillment of the promise of course but the prophets speak of it as something in the future. Jesus now begins to speak of it as the beginning in the present. It now comes from a theoretical and a visionary understanding of the role of God in the world to the beginning of the concretizing of that mission. You and I are part of the concretizing of the mission of the Lord in the midst of the world. We are the ones that have to bring it down to earth as as Andrew and Peter and James and John. We're the ones who are making the concrete reality that gives humanity a choice. Just like in our personal lives, we must concretize our possibilities when we make decisions. So humanity has to have concrete reality before it in order for it to choose to follow the Lord, to choose discipleship. This is what's especially heinous about the sinfulness of the people of the church is it makes us less credible. I've mentioned before and I think again of Saint Francis Xavier going to Goa in the 16th century, trying to proclaim it, which was a Portuguese colony, trying to proclaim to the native people of Goa the kingdom of God and writing back to Saint Ignatius and saying this is futile, this is useless, the Christians here live such totally scandalous lives that nothing I say has credibility. It is not concretized. possibility of the kingdom is not concretized at all. The possibility of the kingdom is not in any way, shape, or form concretized, made existential, made possible for people to see, look at how they live, look at how wonderful this is, look at their happiness, look at all of, and therefore choose Jesus Christ. No, insofar as we ourselves do not repent, insofar as we ourselves allow sinfulness to be an integral part of our lives, an existential part of our life experience. Insofar as we do this, we fail in the great mission that begins in the gospel today, the transformation of the world through the concrete choice of discipleship, which comes about because we are desirous of seeing the burden of sin lifted from the backs of humanity. As we reflect upon this gospel and reflect upon our lives, let us beg the Lord to help us to provide that concrete opportunity to those who do not believe to choose Jesus Christ because of the authenticity of our lives and because of the concrete goodness that comes out of that authenticity and that personal decision ourselves to become disciples of the Lord. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.